Now, it's uh, helpful for you to have uh, your Bibles open before you, uh, so you can follow along. That passage that Val read to us from Isaiah chapter 42, we are going to be spending most of our time uh, in there. You'll also find a sermon outline on the inside of the leaflet that you received. That is there um, with uh, four points, all starting with M. I thought I did well this this week. Uh, Anyway, let's dive in. Now, Easter is coming, and uh, Easter is a time where Christians for 2,000 years have been looking especially at who Jesus is and what he achieved that Passover 2,000, nearly 2,000 years ago. And as we consider that, uh, we're going to dive back into the Old Testament book of Isaiah because the Old Testament, uh, that was the scripture that Jesus had. The Old Testament provided the background for Jesus's understanding of both who he was and what it is that he had come to do. And Isaiah chapter 40 through to 55 is really critical uh, to that understanding. So as we explore this together, uh, my hope and prayer is that we will get to know Jesus better. We will understand more fully uh, what it is that he did. And now you may be visiting with us this morning and you may be, as I said before, someone working out who Jesus is and what it might be uh, like to follow him. It is fantastic that you're here. Uh, This is a great series. Come back week after week uh, and you will see uh, Jesus, his identity and his mission unfolded before you. Uh, I'm going to pray that God would do exactly that. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be uh, at work in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, Give me clear words to say. Give us all clear Uh, thoughts to process what it is that uh, we are learning from your word this morning. And most of all, Father, by your spirit, work in our hearts. Uh, Help us to see you more clearly and love you more fully, uh, that we might bring you glory in all things. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, our society, I would like to suggest, is a society like most societies that is on a quest. I don't know if you think about this, but we have a society uh, that uh, ideally I'm going to have a screen that's going to appear behind me um, because my iPad has dropped off and that's really going to throw me into chaos. This is interesting. Um, I'm going to try and reboot my little system up here while I do an introduction, which is a It's like kind of rubbing your head and patting your stomach kind of thing, if that works, whatever. Uh, It's a quest for justice. Uh, We hear a lot of stuff uh, in our media and from our social commentators uh, about privilege uh, and about oppression. Uh, We hear about the three great battlefronts for the fight for justice, uh, gender, sexism and racism. We have a society that is in search of justice. They are looking for a leader. They are looking for a leader who has a vision for the future, who can bring about a true transformation, who can bring blessing. Can I suggest this is nothing new? For as long as I think there has been human societies, there has been this kind of quest, this quest for justice, this quest for a society where everything is right, 
It's the big picture of Scripture. It's the search for one who will bring blessing. Go back into the Old Testament. Go back right to the start and you have the moment where Adam and Eve rebel against God's command in Genesis 3. And as judgment comes down, with it comes a promise that God would send one who would reverse the effects of the curse that came with sin. One who would crush Satan's head. So with judgment comes the promise of salvation. Genesis 12 we see this promise focuses in on one particular man and his family as God calls Abram, this man from Mesopotamia, and he promises that he will bless him. He will give him a land, he will give him a great name, he will bless him. And as he blesses him, he will bring blessing to the whole world, all the nations, through him. That man Abram had descendants and we see them go into exile in Egypt we see them enslaved and we see the Lord delivering them and they come out to Mount Sinai and in Exodus 19 verses 3 to 6 we have God's word these should be hopefully appearing behind so Joel that one should be there as well sorry I've got blank here Uh, we have actually Joel when I wave my left arm at you you're going, to, you're going to change slides. Good. We have this promise that Israel, the descendants of Abraham through Israel, the nation that came, they were to be the mediators of that blessing. They were to be the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. But what we see throughout the rest of Scripture is the abject failure of Israel to be that. We see the king apostatizing, the king in some cases sacrificing their children to false gods, leading the nation astray. We see the priest leading Israel in the worship of idols. We see prophets speaking their own imaginations rather than the word of the Lord. We see the persistent rejection again and again and again. And so you get a point where in Isaiah 42, verse 19, God describes Israel. And he says, verse 18, Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. Israel, the one who was going to mediate God's blessing, was blind, was deaf, was incapable of doing that. And so at the end of chapter 39, the prophet Isaiah speaks to the then king Hezekiah of a time when his descendants would be in exile, not in Egypt this time, but in Babylon. Isaiah said these words to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come where everything in your palace, all your predecessors have stored up to this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Isaiah speaks speaks of a time when Israel was going to go into exile 
He's prophesied this. He speaks of this beforehand. But as judgment falls, there is both the promise of salvation as well. Verse 40, chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is the situation that we find ourselves this longing for justice, this promise that it was going to come through this descendant of Abraham, through Israel. But Israel is in exile, under judgment, blind and deaf, and not doing what God had called them to. And so Isaiah again comes with a promise that is there. He speaks of the man. Let's read Isaiah 42 verse 1. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. We get introduced to this figure. He's just called at this point the servant, my servant. A servant is someone who does the will of the one who sent him. This servant who does the Lord's will will be upheld by the Lord. He will be sustained and protected. He's been chosen for the Lord's purposes. And not only is he a tool in the Lord's hand, the Lord loves him. He is delighted in him, in whom I delight. And not only does he work for the Lord, the Lord empowers him. My spirit I will put on him. Who is this? This one who is going to come to bring justice. Who is this? Now, books have been written on this. For thousands of years, people have been reading Isaiah's prophecies written around uh, 700 odd BC. Uh, people have been reading these, wondering who it is that Isaiah is speaking about. And Lots of people want to say, oh, this is, this is Israel. But we just heard the Lord's word about Israel, blind Israel, deaf Israel. You dig a bit further, chapter 40, verse 27, complaining and whinging Israel. Verse 40, chapter 42, 23, 24, disobedient Israel. We will see it can't be Israel. So who is it? Well, can I say it kind of, sort of is Israel with a twist. Let me explain. Let me get a little bit technical for you. I'm sorry about this. There's a, a word I want to introduce. Uh, two words, actually. It's called federal headship. You got that? Make perfect sense. Okay. What's the idea? This is a theological idea that's, uh, that people use to describe the fact that you can sum up a group of people in one person. And so the Bible does this in two particular cases. One is in Adam. Adam is the head of created humanity. And so the Bible will speak of Adam and being in Adam and Adam's choices affecting us all. We are in Adam because we are created humanity. The servant is true Israel. 
Israel as it should be. Not a nation. The servant is just one person. But in that one person, we have all the hopes and dreams, all the purposes of God for his people. It's kind of like, uh, if Joel will flick to the next slide, it's kind of like a sports captain, okay? He walks on the field. Sorry, this is a very blokey image, uh, but it's one that we're all familiar with. You know, the toss, he makes a call. It binds the whole team, doesn't it? So you don't have the opening batsman go, we're not batting, don't be stupid, we're bowling. No, no, the bowlers are like, no, 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 we want to bat. We want to, you know, we want to sit in the pavilion for the next two days while you do all the work. No, the captain represents the team, sums up the team, embodies the team, speaks and acts for the team. That's what we see. And this servant embodies all the hopes and dreams of Israel. So who is it? People, again, have written reams of ink about this. Is it Moses? Is it Job? Is it Isaiah? Is it some of the, one of the kings like Hezekiah or Josiah, the good kings? No one mentions the dodgy ones. Uh, is it a prophet? Well, the New Testament is crystal clear. And uh, Val read to us from Matthew chapter 3. Uh, and you'll see a lovely picture of a baptism there. We have these words when Jesus was baptised. Jesus goes to John. You ever wondered why Jesus was baptised? Isaiah 42 tells us exactly why Jesus was baptised. Isaiah, uh, Jesus goes to John. And at that moment, after he was baptised, comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove. What does Isaiah say? I will make my spirit dwell on him. The Spirit of God descends like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased, or in him I delight. What we have in Isaiah is uh, the second half of that phrase. What we have in Psalm 2, a great psalm of kingship, is the first half. This is my Son, Psalm 2. The second half, the beloved in whom my soul delights, comes from Isaiah 42. At Jesus' baptism, he is identified by the descent of the Spirit, by the words from heaven. This is the servant. This is the one who will come. This is the man who is chosen by God to bring justice. This is the one who will set all things straight. The servant song is key to uh, Jesus' understanding of his mission. And as we dive into that, we will understand it hopefully better too. The mission, point three. It's all about justice. He will bring justice to the nations. Verse one. Verse three. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice. This servant that we know as Jesus is going to bring justice. Now, what's that mean? It's a bit scary, isn't it? Sounds like a very, very big stick. And can I say, 
there are two types of justice. When you go into the kind of philosophers who talk about this, they talk about, on one hand, retributive justice. Okay, you've done something wrong and you are going to be punished. That is retributive justice. Our legal system is retributive justice. It is there to correct the evildoer. But there is another type of justice. And this is closer to what is being spoken of here. They call it primary justice. It is where everything is working the way it should. Imagine if our society, everything was just, everything was fair, there was no dishonesty, no crime, no corruption. Everything worked perfectly so that every member of society was blessed equally. That is justice. That is what the scriptures talk about as mishpat. That is the word that is here, that is everything is right at every level. Let me use another illustration. Uh, One of health. When you're sick and you go to the doctor, uh, that's uh, retributive, okay? He is taking, she is taking action to punish the evil-doing germs in your body and to expel them. Okay, you get the idea? But there's a whole concept of health that is not involving sickness, but wellness. And that is the primary justice idea that is here. This idea that we can have a society that is not just locking the bad people away, but promoting blessing for each and every one of us. You'd kind of like to live in a society like that, wouldn't you? And that is what the servant is coming. He is coming to bring what the Bible talks about in another place as shalom, that perfect peace that is there. And it's not just for Israel, it is for the nations. He will, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged because until he establishes justice on the earth. Genesis 12, Abram's descendants were promised to bless all the nations. The servant will bring justice, this perfect righteousness to the entire world. Why not just Israel? Why to the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well? What's there in verse 5? The creator of the heavens and earth who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to all who walk on it. God created it and he cares for it. And so his plan is for all. That is there. And the servant comes to bring that justice. But if we're honest, there's a problem. You get suspicious, don't you? You know, Australians are notoriously suspicious of political leaders, yes? Someone stands up and starts making promises about how they're going to solve all our problems. Does anyone ever believe that? No, we're, we're very sceptical. When it, you know, probably overly sceptical, can I say? But we've seen it. We've seen the man, the woman with the plan standing up, promising to bring justice. We've seen revolutions again and again and again. All they do is swap seats. They just swap who is there at the top or the bottom. Equality, justice, uh, equality, fraternity, what's the other, liberty. Yeah, not if you're under the guillotine, hey? Uh, all we all human revolutions do is they just change who's on the top 
and who's down the bottom. And so we might be a bit suspicious about this. This one is going to come and bring justice. How is that going to be different to every other human revolution that has come about? Because we have a tendency that when we're on the bottom, we look at those who are top, at the top and they are the personification of evil. If you believe some of the press and some of the rhetoric that's out there in the society, I represent everything that is wrong with our society at the moment. One, I'm male. Two, I'm white. Three, I'm middle-class educated. I'm heterosexual. Okay, I represent everything that is wrong with our society. And if you read some of the press, and some of you hopefully don't, uh, I am evil by definition and I should not be allowed to speak. There are people out there who are basically saying, white men should shut up unless we want to speak to you and ask you a question. You have got no right to speak. Why? Because you represent oppression. We demonise those who we perceive to be over us. And that's not saying that white men have never done anything wrong. Don't get me wrong. But in every society, in every revolution, when this happens, we see the good and the bad. The proletariat, good. The bourgeois, bad. The republicans, good. The monarchists, bad. The peasants, good. The landowners, bad. And it validates all kinds of evil and oppression. It's the attraction of epic fantasy. I don't know, Lord of the Rings. You must be familiar with Lord of the Rings, okay? One of the beautiful things about the Lord of the Rings is no one ever thinks that Sauron is just misunderstood, okay? No one looks at an orc and said, well, if if his his mother had cared for him better, you know, or if he'd had the right socialisation, it's black and white. And that is what happens when humans start talking about justice. You have the good and the bad and it validates all kinds of evil. There is no other solution but oppression and perhaps even annihilation when humans start talking about justice. But it was interesting, there was a man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a very famous Russian, who ended up uh, in a a gulag, a work camp uh, under Soviet uh, Russia. And while he was there, He really had an awakening, not just uh, psychologically, but spiritually. Because for him, it would be very easy to look at the camp guards and say, they are evil. I am good. I am the oppressed. The system is evil. And Solzhenitsyn wrote this. He said, if only it was so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If there is going to be a revolution that merely does not shuffle seats, it needs to be more radical than any human revolution has ever been. And this is what the servant promises. Not just a transformation of social structures. In Israel, not just a restoration of Israel in exile back into Canaan. 
not just setting things straight here. Verse 7, he speaks of this revolution that opens the eyes that are blind, that frees the captive from prison, that releases from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. He's speaking here of spiritual bondage, of that dividing line between good and evil, of a revolution that goes not to the social systems, but to the structure of the human heart and the very thing that undermines every human effort to make this a better place. Not saying we can't do good, but every time we seek to do good in the name of justice, we always end up oppressing others. But this servant, he will bring justice. He will destroy the horrendous, dehumanizing effects of sin and restore dignity to humanity as sons and daughters of God. How does he do this? The manner. It's a radical difference. How does Isaiah speak of it? Because this servant, the Lord Jesus, is not like other human revolutionaries. He will not shout or cry out. He will not raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to fight for attention. He's not going to be pushing others aside and speaking over the top of them. He will, in meekness and humility, speak. A bruised rick, he, uh, abused reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. We have this one who will bring justice to the nations, surely a mission worthy of, of the Lord of Lords, the greatest king in history, justice to the nations. But this one, this one does it in meekness, in gentleness, and with compassion. The bruised reed. I don't know if you remember the, uh, the papyrus reeds that would line the rivers in the Middle East. You imagine one that's been bent back double. It's kind of hanging on by a few threads, still connected, but it's been smashed. That's the bruised reed. And this one, this justice bringer, will do it in such a way that even such a bruised reed would not be broken. He will do it in such a way that even the smouldering wick, you know the candle while you get that little little bit at the end and it's guttering, it's just about to go out. He will not snuff the smouldering wick. He does it with gentleness and with compassion with tenderness and mercy. The word we have here for broken, or for bruised, literally means smashed. It's not like your brother or your sister has given you a thump on the arm and you've got a bit of a black spot. Your arm is almost destroyed. You have been all but struck down. Another way to translate it, broken, splintered, This one, in his love, in his compassion, he goes to the edges, to those who mostly revolutions go straight over the top of. 
He goes to you and to me in our brokenness of sin. And he does it not to make a name for himself. He is the servant. He does it for the Lord's glory. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The servant works for the glory of the one who sent him. It's a radical difference. This one, who has a cosmic revolution to bring justice to the nations, will do it not with the sword, but he will do it with compassion, with mercy, with grace, with forgiveness. How? Well, we're not given too much detail in verse chapters, chapter 42. There's more that will come. But here, Isaiah tells us that this servant will teach the law of the Lord, the Torah. It's there in verse 4, in his teachings, literally in his Torah, in the instruction that the Hebrews understood as the law that came from Moses, this one is a new Moses with a new law that the islands, the ends of the earth, they put their hope in. He will teach them. He will be a new and a better Moses. But we will see more of this. But there's hints in here as well. If you've got your Bibles there, verse 3, he speaks of the bruised reed, the smouldering wick. This is where English translations um, sometimes gloss over some things and uh, why reading commentaries by much smarter people than me works well. Because we have the verse 4, He will not falter or be discouraged. Those two words, falter, discouraged, are the words for smolder and break or bruise. Here the servant, the servant will not be bruised. The servant will not be snuffed until... I checked all the English translations. My Hebrew is nowhere near good enough. But until he's in them all. He will not be bruised. He will not be snuffed until he has brought forth justice. Showing that he will be. That he will be. He will be crushed. He will be splintered. He will be broken. We'll see this more as we go further on. He will be snuffed out so that the light of life might never be snuffed in us. He will be broken so that we might be made whole. This is the servant. This is the revolution. This is the justice bringer, the one who will set all things straight. This is the Lord Jesus. What does it mean? To follow him. What does it mean to be people of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, it means the mandate we have is to be a community, to be individuals that embody his teaching. Remember the disciples when uh, they come, uh, they they come to Jesus. Jesus has just given some tough teaching, and Everyone has deserted him except for the 12. 
And this is the one bit where I think Jesus was possibly getting a bit frustrated. And he turns to them in John 6 and he says, are you going to go too? And you remember what Peter says, Peter who gets it wrong so many times. Love Peter. He gets it right at this point. And he says, where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, has given us in his scriptures the words of eternal life and he tells us to be a a community that put our trust in his word, that find the blessing that comes through obedience, that demonstrate in our life together and as we go out from here in the community, in our lives, the mishpat, the justice that Christ himself gives us. And we do that with a combination of conviction. He will not rest. He will not be discouraged. He will not falter. We can go because he went. We can go resting in his finished work. Because we don't have to earn it. We receive it by grace, through faith. We go with conviction. But because we have nothing to prove... We can go with compassion. We don't need to bring Christ's justice on earth. He has done it. And he will do it in full when he returns. So we can go with compassion and with gentleness. Are we a community that fans smouldering wicks back to flame? That binds up the bruised reed. To be gentle is not to be weak. To be loving, to be kind, is not to do that in the expense of truth and justice. It's because we have those words, we have that teaching, because the servant has finished his work, that we can act with conviction and compassion. Some will oppose us. Some will accuse us. Like the servant, we can put our trust in the Father who will uphold us. And ultimately, we are called to give the glory to the Lord. Like the servant, equipped with the Spirit, we too, the servant has equipped us to work for the glory of the one who sent him. Verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. We are his people. That is who we are. His spirit dwells in us. And in his name, we go to live and to work for justice, knowing that he will bring it in fullness. Let's pray. Father, what a breathtaking image we have through your word of the work of the Lord Jesus. If we have had too small a picture of Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our faith, that we would become those who see that Jesus has plans not just for us as individuals, not just for our society, but for the whole of human history. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, but Father, 
that one, your servant whom you sent. Father, he meets us in humility. He meets us in gentleness. He meets us and through his breaking, he heals us. Through his bruising, we are bound up. Through his snuffing, the light of life in us will never be put out. And Father, we thank you for the great hope that you have given us in the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.